Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we're grateful, as always, to stand before you, each other, to present our lives as we've read we ought to be presenting it to you. We'd ask that we would learn more of the qualities of the Christian life. In your Son's name, Amen. Well, you know, the next bit of James was good too, so I tried, I went back to Second Kings, looked at that passage again, tried to make myself thinking creatively. But I went back to James and, and it just sort of uh, insisted. We're in chapter two of James. There's an element of the first chapter that we looked at that talked about thinking you're religious, not controlling your tongue, deceiving your heart. The kind of things we do to deceive ourselves and not be the kind of religion God wants of us. And so he introduces the very next verse out of uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, of course, when James was writing this, there were no chapters, there were no verses, there was just the next thought. My brethren, this is right at the top of our sheet, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Have a seat here, please, while you say to the poor man, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love it? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme that honorable name which was invoked over you? Makes you think of the Lord's comment in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Very natural for us to, yeah, coming right out of that, helping the widows and the orphans in our affliction. And, uh, and here showing favoritism to the corporate, wealth driven, arrogant. Now, it would be very easy to go that direction, very easy. to point you in a direction that would be just as sinful as the one described here. It says, you pay attention, you make distinctions, you show partiality. Because it says, show no partiality, make distinctions. Now, it is natural to be partial to wealthy people. I, uh, I like them a lot. Um, they treat you to lunch, and 
No, 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 I'll get this, Evan. You must be a poor clergyman. Wealthy friends are great. And we know that we're measuring when we think of wealthy friends or partiality to someone of wealth. I've quoted it before here, the line by Lord Chesterfield, I've never knew a man who was inattentive to a man he feared or a woman he loved. Um, We show attention to those that we think would benefit us. We make partial movements towards them because we think it would get us something. The woman we love will reciprocate or the man we fear will not hurt us or the rich person will reward us in some sort of way. And James makes it known, says, aren't the poor the recipient of God's good grace? And aren't the rich the people that maybe generally are the uh, Excuse me. Are those that uh, blaspheme the name that was invoked over you? Isn't it the people who run this country or live in Hollywood that are the greatest proponents of great wickedness? They're not the great proponents of righteousness. And when you show partiality to the rich and neglect the poor, you dishonored the poor. You you you've made a distinction. You made a partial uh, action, and <coughs> it just seems, I like the way it's described. Very, very slight, very, very simple. Oh, you're obviously a man of good standing in the community. Have this, this good seat, this padded, it's great. You don't have to, and, and for the poor man, he expects nothing other than sitting on the floor. <coughs> Excuse me. What we're supposed to do is not, this is going to be a bit, maybe you'll think it's too subtle. We're supposed to get to the end where we show no partiality. We're not, and remember, Christian ethics are driven not by a list of rules which says, be nice to poor people, be bad to rich people. Nor is it the reverse, be good to rich people, be bad to poor people. When you're looking at this, the thing is, do not show partiality. How do I get there? What is the Christian motivation for any moral act? (coughs) Says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. That is the answer to this problem. The answer is not to shift your church's mood from being a strongly budget-conscious Episcopalian church that wants to build a new wing and a new parking lot and a new car for the pastor, where money starts to become an issue and budgets become an issue. You say, no, we're an artisanal church. We have people with beards, and we, we do natural things, and we sing hymns. Or, well, actually pretty good, actually pretty good. We're going to be about regular folks, the poor, and, and helping in the community. We're not here to design a new law. The royal law takes care of everything. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ 
Christ quotes that, as you know, in Matthew, is the greatest commandment. The first, second greatest, the first is love the Lord your God. And so my response to this is not to read the first paragraph, verses 1 through 7, and go, okay, let's <coughs> design a church with this intention. That we're going to show partiality to the poor. I have some verses here on the side from Proverbs 28. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread the man will do wrong. Both the people who desire to be rich and the poor who just desire to survive will do bad things. In Leviticus, in the law, listen to this, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not be partial to the poor. Because for some people, just like the groveling, obsequious, you know, people like Evan who want to have rich friends, because we want that little trickle-down that Ronald Reagan promised us. You want to cozy up to well-to-do people. <coughs> I apologize, I'm not well. But the... No time off, no rest for the weary. Um, there are other people who get a great sense of their advancement in life by thinking the poor are somehow noble or more righteous for having been poor. It's the starving artist thing or the, uh, um, the noble person that the, 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 the Ancien Regime in France crushing the sansculottes so they do not get up and, and know anything and, and have anything and they had to finally start cutting off heads. People side with the poor. That's why Marxism works so well. I mean, not as a project. It doesn't work well at all. But, but as a, an inspirational thing for young people in American colleges, they think it's, you know, great. Because it has shown partiality to the poor. The law of Moses says, no, that wouldn't be righteousness, that wouldn't be justice, right? And that's, for example, that's the law of Moses. At the same time, James himself is saying, you're supposed to fulfill the royal law. The answer to partiality as a problem is for you to love people and make no distinctions. The person, remember when Jesus was teaching on that, the greatest commandment, and the who was it, a scribe, a Pharisee, somebody said, well, who is my neighbor? When he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Really, this is a tough question. And we had the story of the Good Samaritan. Come out of that. Who was this man's neighbor? The person in front of you. Does your heart not pick up the worldliness of either obsequious flattery to the wealthy or social justice bowing and scraping before the poor? 
Are you about the righteousness of God and the love of God that you're going to be giving to everybody? That a man who comes before you and he is poor, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just downtrodden, Your Honor. Well, I don't care. You still stole that stuff. You're going to jail. Same is true with the rich man. If you stole that stuff, you're going to jail. It says here, verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. <coughs> For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails on one point, has been guilty of all of it. Now, he's telling you a principle about the nature of law. Any law. You have Hammurabi's law, you have Moses' law, you have Roman law, you have the royal law of Christ. If you miss on one point of the law, you become a lawbreaker. He who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. If you do not commit adultery, but do kill, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay? That's just a piece of information, because it's not... Law is not a smorgasbord of your interests. You don't line up with Hammurabi's law, or Moses' law, and say, I like that one. And I think I'll do that one. And over here I'll do that. These are pretty easy. I'll do that. And I'll maybe do three tough ones. The nature of law is, is an expression of the will of a man or a being greater than you who has the ability to punish you for your violations of his law. Now, we're under this royal law. He's letting you know that if you were under Mosaic law, if you committed murder but didn't commit adultery, you're still a lawbreaker. If you've got all sorts of caring for people, loving your neighbor as yourself, but just find yourself bumping up into your favoritism to the wealthy and your lack of responsiveness to the poor, or just, remember, it doesn't say he kicked the poor out of the church. The poor is allowed to be there. You know, just sit at my feet. So that's where you're wrong. Start to measure it by worldly standards. The church is not. We're not here because of some other way to echo the standards in the world. We're here because Jesus Christ saved us from our sins. And we want to have fellowship with each other. And that is true for the poor man and for the rich man. In a given church, the poor man might be an elder and the rich man not. We're not talking about, we're talking about a very slight negativity. And James is saying, you become a lawbreaker of the royal law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So, if you know that the Christian ethical process is not following the law of Moses, not the Ten Commandments, it's the, the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and you shall love your God. Because in those all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. That's what you're supposed to do. James is letting you know this slight social reaction <coughs> is disobedience of the law. Disobedience of the law of love. So, he says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under that law. Now this is going to be true whether or not you favor the poor because you're a worldly social justice warrior or 
Whether you favor the rich because you're a, you're a tool. Just because you have different partialities, things that in this world will reward you. We're to be loving to all men. And then it says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Yet mercy triumphs over judgment. We know that that illustration in Christ's parables where um, talks about the servant that owed the master a huge chunk of change and he pleads with him and he gets forgiven and then he goes off and throttles a fellow servant that owes him 25 cents and, and doesn't show any mercy. This is a question of are you, is your heart ready to, I don't know who you are, I don't know which problem you have, whether you're you know, just difficult and um, in Marxist, or are you difficult in a uh, obsequious piece of work? I don't know which one you tend to. Do you show mercy to them? There's that passage. I just thought of this. Maybe I can find it. It's in his. You'll never guess what book it's in. Oh, Ecclesiastes, you say. Um. Where is it? Oh, it has to do with the... Uh, um, oh, here it is. Chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Oh, Makes you want to put your chase shirt on. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. In this world, the world is a messed up place. The, the rich and the abusers of power need your mercy. The poor who thieve and rob and just suffer, don't get ahead in life, need to get some breaks. They need your mercy too. Everyone needs your mercy. If you don't, whatever you are valuing in partiality, needs to be scrubbed because it does not grant you the Christian love be expressed without partiality. Now, in our society, we're very conscious of racial things or we don't have class structures quite so much uh, as, as in other countries. You want, to, you want to examine yourself because you don't want to be running around life just accepting the partialities of your world not knowing you're violating the royal law of Christ in a key area, and if people say, are you a loving person? Oh yeah, sure, I'm, I love everybody. Check this. Your sociological behavior towards groups that you high and low approve and disapprove, if that becomes a matter of your action, you start acting a certain way, you will be judged. If you do not show mercy, you'll be shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't know what James was thinking, whether he was trying to do a little, what's it called, a little specious reasoning where he, that judgment without mercy, that judgment gets mercy because mercy is always greater than judgment. I don't know. If I, that's a little bit convoluted. 
but that mercy is this great thing. Don't be judged for not having it. You will show mercy. You need to show mercy where your intentions, your partiality is in the negative. If you kind of think, you notice how the movies in recent years, first there was Disney making fun of every father. Okay? Every father was a born idiot. Moms were halfway okay. And the kids, of course, were geniuses. And, uh, but also, there's a lot of political... You never see, except for maybe Tony Stark, the hero, be a corporate executive. Because corporate executives are the villains. You can't even make, you know, foreign nationals the villains or communists. You have to make, you know, the head of craft the villain. If you have a negative thing about the head of craft, pick your corporation, Exxon, what are, what are bad names? Amazon, Bezos. Monsanto, yeah, that's a good one. Monsanto. I'm going to go home and eat Monsanto doctored foods for my lunch. So you might not like Monsanto or the people that work for them. That's exactly where your mercies are better be pointed. Your partiality has no place in Christ. This man is sinful. The poor are wicked. The rich are wicked. They need the Lord. You've got a social, social reaction to one or the other. Don't live your life that way, especially in the church. And you become a lawbreaker. You become someone who get, got mercies from God. Boy, when you needed the mercies of God, man, you got it. But when you have a negative opinion of either the rich or the poor, and you act in such a way that shows that you have that negative opinion, that, uh, what do they call it? Diminution, is that a word? You become someone who is not living by the righteousness of God. What does it profit, my brethren? Now this is, remember, James is writing this, just like he wrote out of this, the kind of religion you need to be is not just in words, supposed to be in deed, and this is the kind of deed you're supposed to be looking out for. Your heart is supposed to be in the royal law. It doesn't stop here. What does it profit, my brethren? If a man says he has faith but has not works. Now usually we grab this when we want to talk about the doctrine of faith and faith alone and all the rest and how James is problematic for Martin Luther and, and he didn't like James as a pistol of straw, says Martin Luther. Because it just sort of upset the apple cart for our full-throated support of St. Paul. What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not worked? Can his faith save him? Now, first you're going to parse this out. What does it profit? What's the gain? If you have faith that does not work, you don't do things with regard to it, do you get one the profit of your salvation? If a brother or sister is ill-clad or in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So there's also the other profit. Helping the person. <coughs> there's a salvation of your soul, 
Does your faith, can your faith save you? Can your faith, your, this sola fide thing going on, can your faith save you? It certainly doesn't put food on the table for the poor man. So, he says, verse 17, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, there's been an awful lot of chat about this, oh, ever since the Reformation. Awful lot of chat about this ever since the Apostles. There's many things. Great tomes have been written uh, on the subject, dealing with James and Paul agreeing or not agreeing. But I, I want you to understand something. We've been talking the last few weeks about how doctrine is the measuring tape of the table you are, right? I don't know why I picked table, because they're easy to measure, I guess. You know, right there, and you can measure it, and measure it. It's got width, depth, height. And doctrine measures the table. You're the table. Actual tables hold things up. You get scoot up to the table, you get to eat off your food off the table, do your homework at the table. The table is a table. It is not made a table by how wide it is or long it is. Your measurements of the table are just for record keeping. You need to know that in Christ, the tableness of the, each of you, what Jesus wanted you to be as furniture in the kingdom, is the kind of furniture that loves people regardless and doesn't find themselves slipping into worldly measurements, whatever they are. I have to produce. Without the production, James is here to tell us that, that your belief in Jesus Christ is going to produce an active person living that out. So faith by itself, it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, his first thing was, in verse 14, if a man says he has faith but not works, then he gets to the situation of the guy saying, you have faith and I have works. Maybe it's another person responding to the guy in verse 14. James says, you know, you don't seem to understand how this world works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Just pony that up. How, how could you show me what you believed? I don't know if you ever responded to this question. Yeah, how would I show someone my faith? I know, I could chant it. Yeah, let's all say the Apostles' Creed together. I agree with the Apostles' Creed. Is that going to do it? Whatever thing you want to chant back. No one can say Jesus is Lord. We were talking about lordship last night in the library. And, and one of the problems that we run into is that lordship, once you start saying, you know, people don't make Jesus Christ Lord, and pretty soon people are talking in terms of lordship all the time because their lips are not far from God. Their hearts are far from God. We don't want to, we don't have any other test for faith other than life. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. That's what I can do if I say I believe in Jesus Christ. You want to be shown, you show, oh, excuse me, you believe that God is one, you do well. Okay, yeah, God is one. When God, 
back in the Jesus people days, you know, it was the one-way sign, which was just as, just, okay. You know, there were hippies, you know, did peace signs. Yeah, only posers in high school gave the peace sign, you know. Putting a flower in the barrel of a riot policeman's gun, you know, peace. And Christians, oh, we got one, one way. Big poster. Remember, you guys remember the poster? The real, the one-way sign that said one way at the bottom? It was really, really dramatic. Because we can turn anything into a fraud. Anything. The one, one thing you can't do fraudulently is live like a Christian. You can't get a non-Christian to do it. And when Christians live like Christians, whatever they say about the doctrine of God has power and is true. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There are ways, there are actions for halfway claims. There are works, shuddering, that comes from a certain kind of faith. The demons believe correct doctrine about God. How are you different from a demon? Because there's going to be a reaction to believing without this difference. What's the difference? We say, well, they have a reaction. They have a, a response to believing that God is one. They shudder. Do you want to be shown, you shallow man? That's where my translation says, do you want to be shown, Skippy? Some people have been decided to count up my use of the word Skippy. It's just been recent. I haven't used it a lot. That faith apart from works is barren. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And God responds to that, Now you did not withhold your own son from me. I knew that what you claimed to believe, you believed. Even God's knowledge of your belief is in your actions. You know, the tables we're supposed to be are supposed to be good. The unity we have, we have with others who have been changed by our belief in Christ into good people. Not changed by our belief in a common thread of doctrine about Jesus Christ without any reference to whether they're good people. And the good people is not divided up like rich and poor. It's good and bad. It's loving and not loving. That's who we find unity with. When you find someone that you, you know, believes 180 degrees out from you and everything theological, but you have great fellowship with them because you have found the same place to stand in your faith in Christ and in the life that comes from it. Now, we have reverses of these things. He says, he has faith and not works. He has works and not faith. James says, now these, th these things are inseparable, if you want to put it that way. Faith and works are not separable. We're supposed to be made into righteous beings. We have a tendency in conservative circles, and I would consider myself a conservative, to be stressing the faith principles. 
And all too often, somebody who's been defending the faith has been cheating on their wife. Far too often, I just read that Paul Pressler of the Southern Baptist Convention was discovered you've been molesting small boys for decades while he defended the conservative views of the Southern Baptist Convention against the dark liberalism. Ah, their words, Lord, Lord, do this, that in your name, I never do you. We know that conservatives like to stress the faith, the faith claims. They're not really stressing the faith because they wouldn't be able to show you a faith that was distinct from a claim. A claim isn't faith. Matter of fact, James says it's not even there. It's dead. It's barren. It's not functional unless it has works. But the conservatives get into that camp. Fight for the doctrine. Fight for the high ground morally in declaration, not in life. Liberals... They're far more about the works and they're willing to flush all the claims about Jesus Christ down the toilet. Jesus Christ raised from the dead is not that important. Really is that we treat everybody fairly. So let's give everybody a guaranteed minimum income. That'll work, I'm sure. Christians are not like either of those, conservatives nor liberals. We're Christians. We love everybody. Even if you're a conservative Christian, you'll love the communists, you know. Love them. They need the Lord. And if you're some, a more liberal Christian who loves the Lord, you'll love your conservative friends. You don't get triggered by it. Now, think about what you live like. What kind of table are you? A sturdy, well-designed table holds up anything you would put your, you know, everybody in the room could put their feet up on it and not be a problem. Holds up all the dinner plates. It's not from Ikea. Doesn't it? What kind of table are you? It describes what you believe. I mean, really, if faith cannot be described in actuality without a life, what is it? Are you more like a demonic situation where I shudder when I think of my... You've known people who have come to you going, I really don't know if I'm saved, man. I don't know if I'm saved. Well, yeah, it's natural for people who are not living in the faith they claim is they shudder because that's what happens when you make claims about the deity of Christ and the judgment and eternal salvation or hell. It tends to, it tends to give you pause. You're in trouble. What... What are you? Are you walking through your life confidently loving people in front of you? Whoever it is, the, the beat up guy on the side of the road who happens to be a different ethnic group than you, the poor man who needs a $20 bill, do you give him the $20? Do you take the rich guy out to lunch? That's a good feeling sometimes. Take the rich guy out to lunch. Go raid the couch cushions, find some money. Not eat for three days. I'm going to take the rich guy out for lunch. It's good for your soul. And he gets lunch for free. Now, when I, I've been talking recently to various people about 
getting things, communicating things well. I, you know, I know I don't always communicate things well. But I, so struggling with getting that across to people, whether you're talking to a bunch of people who are facing your direction, and that's all I can guarantee, you're facing this direction. Some of you are nodders. When I, when I, my, my eyes go, and they know, it's that, and they, and they nod at me. Nod, nod. Which guarantees they're listening. Well, really, but are we going to, we don't end up like the Southern Baptists with some famous guy at the head of the, you know, having lived a life faithful to the church and find out he belongs in prison. I don't want that to happen to any of you. What, what works? Are we going to start a program where we're going to go home and get a leaf rake and go rake someone's yard and get a t-shirt for it? I, is that you know? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to go create the good works for you to do? No, because the first thing, the first works that the soul who meets God, who believes, encounters is whether it's the gospel or getting right. You confess. You repent and believe. You have to confess your sins. I was talking to a friend the other day about he had some problems and. And they were the kind of thing that, yeah, there were easy Bible answers to him, but there was no way he could apply easy Bible answers because his walk was not with the Lord. He was walking a semi-religious, friendly to Christianity, not pursuing God. He needed to confess it. Second one is you have to desire it. I mean, demons believe if they don't desire God... That's why they're demons. That's why they're shuddering. If you cannot, if you look at your life and say, <coughs> oh yeah, I'm happy to get into an argument about Christianity or talk about spiritual things every once in a while. <coughs> and I think I was given enough Bible reading in my youth to claim I'm you know, well informed. You know, do you desire? You desire the holiness of God. I mean, this is about holiness. The tables are holy. They are the furniture of the Holy of Holies in the temple of God in glory. And you're that table. And you're destined for holy use. Do you want that? I, I, I understand fully if you don't. I mean, really. I, I understand if you don't. God just sort of is a big buzzkill to you. And interferes with things. C.S. Lewis was talking about it this last week, how he couldn't stand the idea of God because he hated interference more than anything. And God was the transcend, transcendent interferer. You couldn't even in your soul be something different. God was going to interfere with that too. You don't want this, I understand. Don't bother getting up in the morning on Sundays. Why are you here? If you're after Christ, confess how little you are. Desire. Measure your desire. Do you even want, is your desire a work of your faith? Because when you say the holy and transcendent things about God, nobody's going to believe you unless this desire is evident in you. You won't be able to believe you have that faith. Yeah, I know about this great treasure, you know, uh, 
You know, down in Genesee, it's about two feet down. And I know exactly where on the GPS. Oh, it's about a billion dollars. No, I don't really have the time. Do you do? No, you. We have to say, you don't believe there's a billion dollar treasure two feet under the ground in Genesee someplace. You don't believe it. You can talk about it, but you don't believe it. Confess, desire, and seek it. You won't find it without it. But that's your first, your first go-round with the works that show your faith. All the rest of the works, helping the poor, helping the needy, um, taking the rich guy to lunch, whatever the good things you can do, being kind to your wife, loving your children, whatever it is, is preceded by the work that your faith produces in confession, desire, and pursuit. If you don't pursue the things of God, it's not the faith of God that you have. In the same way, verse 25, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? We like Abraham. He's kind of a holy Bedouin. You know, I sort of already pictured him sort of wise and Abrahamic. But the hope was justified by works when she received the messengers. A lot of us were bad. This faith we claim really only forgives. Will the faith save you? Can your faith save you? You better check whether or not the faith is represented by a changed life. Jesus Christ changes lives. And if it doesn't, hasn't, you should be concerned. Because if you've been the hoe, it matters if your faith actually saved you. It says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. I was wondering there, whether the works were like the spirit. You know, it's the word's breath. <coughs> you're not alive. If you stop breathing, you're dead. That's basically what it If you stop breathing, you're dead. Your faith is similarly dead if you stop working the life of a Christian. What do you do? What do you like? Where you run it, Dick and I were talking about running the dipstick into our lives last night. What part of your life, what analysis is the dipstick bringing up? Do you believe God? Do you live as if you believe God? And we can push our way to the front of this argument and say, no, Wilson, you're overreaching here. James, he's a heretic. Sola fide. Faith alone. I don't have to do anything used to be an argument about lordship salvation. You didn't have to make Jesus his Lord. You do. You have to change. It ain't salvation. It ain't faith unless you change. So be looking for yourself in that. And don't necessarily sum up all the changes you would see in righteousness. Sum up these first changes. Did it bring, did what you believe of Jesus Christ bring you to your knees? Two, do you want it? And are you going to pursue it? If it doesn't produce those, you know, become a Buddhist. That probably shouldn't be the last things on the sermon. But <laughs> let's pray.
Become a Buddhist, said the pastor. <laughs> Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your kindness to us and patience with us. We'd ask that our faith would be lived. That we, as a small body of believers in this town, would start treating others, whether it's the poor, the rich, family, co-workers, whoever it is, that we might have worldly ways of not being good toward, that we'd be good toward them, Lord, because you are. You are kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Help us be kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Make us sure of our salvation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.